today we're going to talk again about perseverance, this time in the context of work. And last week, some of you I know, uh, if you're not married, you felt like that wasn't maybe immediately applicable. This week, everybody's included because everybody here has some field of work. Uh, And that could be whether you're a student or a retiree or anything in between. God has called us all into some field. For those of you who uh, are working, you may be laboring under hard conditions right now. And I'm, I'm aware of that. Some people have a hard boss or working really long hours, doing work that feels unfulfilling, or you may work in an oppressively carnal environment. Um, You may have thankless and repetitive tasks as part of your work. I know my wife, she stays home with our three boys all under seven, and I think a lot of times she feels like her tasks are thankless and repetitive. And really, whether you're you're working uh, in any of those ways, or even if you're unemployed, um, God has, has put your hands to something. And that even includes things as broad as the time you invest in your neighbors, the time you spend serving the city, the time that you spend washing dishes and mowing the yard, all of those things are within the biblical scope of work. And all of us, whatever station of life we're in, we're all called to persevere in our work. My kids learned an, uh, an important lesson on persevering in work a few months ago. My wife was at the grocery store, and I think she was the thousandth shopper or something. And so when she, she swiped her card, and uh, like balloons dropped and confetti cannons and music and all the staff came around and, and, and clapped and cheered and they gave her a $500 gift card and my, my middle son Jackson who's four he understands the concept of the, the plastic card he doesn't yet understand the scope of currency maybe um, and so he saw the $500 gift card and he goes mommy this is fantastic daddy will never have to go to work again and I said I'm probably gonna have to persevere a little longer buddy but we were thankful for the gift card nonetheless Many people, I think, relate to work uh, in in a couple of ways which can can actually be damaging. So on the one hand, we can see work as just a necessary evil, right? That that thing we have to do to pay the bills and not necessarily enjoy doing it. And then on the other hand, we can see work as that thing that defines our identity, that thing that conveys our greatest sense of worth. And the Bible actually presents a vision of work that, that reflects to a degree both of those, and actually neither of those. It's both in that the Bible acknowledges the inherent toil of labor, that it's difficult. And it recognizes the deep intrinsic value of work. And it's neither because it's not so, the Bible doesn't view it as so one-dimensionally shallow as being just a necessary evil, and that's it. Nor does it view work as deep as being sufficient to serve as your identity. Instead, the, the, the Bible paints a portrait of work that is actually an opportunity to worship while giving form, giving shape to God's grace in the world. And so we're going to talk about persevering in that work. We're going to read from Colossians chapter 1. If you have a Bible with you, if you want to open there, please do. We'll be in Colossians 1, 9 through 14. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. Now, this prayer that we're going to read in in Colossians 1, it's a prayer of the Apostle Paul for the church at Colossae. It was written about 62 AD, so middle of the first century. The passage isn't primarily a teaching passage about persevering in work, per se. It's really a general prayer for the church there. But you have to realize that when when the Apostle Paul prays for the church at Colossae, the the greatest expression of that prayer, the context of that prayer, really is going to be manifest in their work, right? Because just like us, those those first century Christians had jobs. They they had fields. They they spent the majority of their hours working in various ways. And so... We're going to take a look at this prayer as a reflection of God's deep desire for his people 
and see if we can glean some encouragement as we think about what it means to persevere in the various fields that God has called us into. So Colossians 1, starting at verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thanks be to God. Some of you are familiar with Leo Tolstoy. He was a 19th century Russian author. And he once wrote something that, that I found pretty provocative. He, he said this. He said, If then I were asked for the most important advice I could give, that which I considered to be the most useful to the men of our century, I should simply say, in the name of God, stop a moment. Cease your work. Look around you. Consider what you are and what you ought to be. Think of the ideal. I think it's a really apt encouragement even for those of us in this century to stop the frenetic pace of our work for a moment, the frenzy of our lives, and consider what we are and what we ought to be to consider the ideal. And I think the Apostle Paul would agree with that encouragement as well. And so the first thing we're going to look at in our journey to persevere in the work that God has given us is that we need to redefine the purpose of our work. We have to redefine the purpose of our work. Look at Colossians 1.10 in the passage we just read. Paul says, I haven't stopped praying for you. And then he goes on to say, so that, right, purpose, so that indicates purpose, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Did you catch, did you catch those elements, ingredients for a deeply purposeful understanding of what God has called us to? Now, I think the reality is that most of us work with a default purpose. We get to work, right? We show up to our email or our spreadsheet or our cash register or our machinery, whatever it is that we do, and we begin to go through the motions. Not always contemplative, not always purposeful in, in what we're doing or why we're doing it. We're just in the rhythm of our life. And so we work with a default purpose. And I think for a lot of us, particularly in this part of the world, in our worst moments, our default purpose is something like the accumulation of power and prestige and possessions. And that's to a large degree what our, what our culture would counsel us to do. And this isn't novel or unique. That kind of ambition has been around as old as time. In Genesis 11, remember the story of the Tower of Babel? A bunch of folks say, let's, let's build a, a tower to the heavens and make a great name for ourselves on all the earth. Right? Ambition is not new. So that's really our default purpose at our worst moment, I think, for a lot of us. But what about our, what about our best moment? What's your default purpose even in your best moment? I think some of us would, would say something along the lines of the purpose of our work is to provide for our families, to, prof to provide for the logistical realities of, of living in the world, right? To, to do what we have to do to survive. Now, there's a pastor and author in New York City, Tim Keller, and he makes a really interesting observation in his book called Every Good Endeavor. And he actually gives us a warning here. And he says, work can convince you that you're working hard for your family and friends while you're actually being seduced through ambition to neglect them. 
And I think probably some of us can relate to that. My wife and I were just having breakfast um, a few months ago with a, a couple that we've known a few years. They were, I think, in their first or second year of marriage. They just had their first child. And we asked them, how are you doing? How's your marriage? How is it being parents? And, uh, and the wife explained to us, actually through tears, that she was dealing with some stuff. See, her dad was the CEO of a, a Fortune 500 company, very public, recognizable company. So he worked, as you can understand, very hard her whole life to climb the ladder that he found himself atop of. And, and she was confessing that because of, of his absence, because of his hard work, it, it actually had done some things in her life that, that were not beneficial. And she was seeing the effect of those things in her own marriage and, re- and actually even in her own motherhood. And so we have to be careful about the seduction, the, the seduction of ambition. We have to be careful to use our work to serve our families and not to use our families to serve our work. So if, if that tends to be our default purpose, we have to ask the question, like Tolstoy encouraged us, well, what's the designed purpose, right? How, how should it be? What is the biblical goal? If the call is to persevere in our work, persevere unto what? Unto what end? And, and I would submit to you that, that the Bible, if you distill those things that we looked at, right, in Colossians 1, and you took the, the larger biblical narrative of work, I would say that, I would state it like this, that work is for the glory of God and the good of people. The glory of God and the good of people to actually contribute to the flourishing of the entire human community. So perseverance is only a relevant concept in light of an intended end, as we said. When we commit ourselves to perseverance to the wrong end, our perseverance is fruitless. If we're going to the wrong place, it doesn't actually matter if we get there. And many of us, I think, strive for an end that we imagine will give us fulfillment or joy or happiness in our work. And so for some of us, it may be working for a certain company or holding a certain position or title. It may be having a certain dollar amount in your bank account. It may be having a certain number of followers on your your blog or social media, depending on what sphere you're in. But the designed purpose for work, the biblical end into which we persevere is the glory of God and the good of people. Paul goes on in verse 11 in our passage. It says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience. Now that word there, endurance, the Greek word is hupomone. And the reason I, I point that out is because the, the word, the Greek word, gets translated variously throughout the New Testament. So sometimes it might show up as endurance or steadfastness or perseverance, but it's throughout the New Testament. And so it's a, it's a, a clearly important concept. Once we've determined the right destination, once we have redefined the purpose of our work and understand the biblical goal for work, then perseverance matters immensely. I know that Pastor Jeff, who, who preaches normally, he's like a world-class runner, and I'm not really. I may be, uh, I may be a world-class consumer of desserts. That's probably the best superlative I could come up with. Um, but there was one time when my wife and I were first married, we were 24 years old, we were living in New York City, and the organization she worked for asked us to participate in a charity relay. So it was a 50-mile race, um, sort of tag team, and they said, Christian, we need you to run a mile and a half leg. And I was like, that's fine, right? I'm in fairly good shape. Um, though I'm not a runner, I can do a mile and a half. And so we leave the city really early one morning, 5 o'clock. We show up north of the city for this thing, and we're, we're pretty unprepared. We just have our sneakers on, hearts full of ambition, ready to run. And I learned that my leg of the race isn't going to be until early afternoon. And so I think, man, we didn't even have breakfast. I guess I should have planned, I, I should have planned for this a little bit more. But fortunately, by the goodness and providence of God, there was a box of free food in the van that was shuttling our team around. 
And so I looked at this box and it was full of high fiber protein bars and apples. And I thought, well, thank God that he has provided so generously for me. It didn't necessarily occur to me at the time, the nutritional content of all that fiber. So I just started crushing those things all morning as I'm riding along, just happy as a clam. I've got my box of free food. Eventually, it's, it's my time to run. And the way this thing worked is that at every handoff point, they had a DJ and music and the crowd was there, you know, cheering and stuff. Uh, very high energy. But our team had fallen so woefully behind the rest of the field that when it was my turn to get the baton, there was no one there. It was just like our van was parked and I was there and a couple of team members. And, and my teammate is, is uh, hobbling, you know, down, she had hurt her ankle, so she's hobbling down the road. Finally get the baton and I think, okay, we've got some ground to make up. We are in a distant last place. I know I'm not a big time athlete, but I'm going to go for it. It's just a mile and a half. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to virtually sprint this thing. That's only six laps around the track, right? I can do that. And so I take off and immediately I find myself going up an incredibly steep hill. I've probably never been on a hill this steep outside of a car. And so I'm chugging up this hill and I am not moving quickly. And the race, I think, had been advised by a lawyer or something for risk management that they needed an ambulance to trail the the last runner in the field. And so I'm working my way up this hill and this ambulance just creeping along by me. And the ambulance driver very considerately rolls down his window and he says, hey, buddy, are you okay? You don't look well. Do you need some help? Like, listen, pal, just roll up your window. I am fine. And so, I mean, the ambulance is creeping there. I think there was maybe a hearse behind him. The buzzards are circling overhead. Blood is in the water. This is not going well. I finally get up the hill. I think, okay, I got, I have more ground to make up. I did not do well on the hill, but now I'm on flat service. I'm going to fly. And so I take off, right? I start kicking and I'm running and I'm running and I'm thinking, man, it feels like I've been running a while. I finally see a volunteer with a logo shirt and I think, great, this is it. So I run to this guy and he goes, you know, you need to head this way. I'm like, is this not the end? And he goes, nope, just go that way. I say, how much longer is it? I "I don't know. I just need you you to go that way. So I run, I'm running through the woods. The trail isn't marked. I don't really know where I am. At this point, my stomach begins to tell me, what a bad idea it was to eat all those high fiber protein bars, right? I mean, it's, it's speaking to me in deep groans. And it's, it's like that scene in Weatherman. I'm like, oh, that milk was not a good idea, right? Not a good idea. So I am, I'm struggling. My body's cramping. Um, and I'm running. I'm running. Finally, I get to the finish line. I see it. And so I run across. I, I stumble across, actually. I fall down in the grass. I'm, I'm laid up on my back. And the paramedic comes over to me. And he says, we need to get this guy help. Stat. I think he said stat. That's a medical term. I'm not sure he said it, but it makes it more dramatic, right? It's, it's sort of for the effect of the story. But he's tending to me and he goes, you're not sweating. You're dehydrated. We need to get you some water. And I, I'm laying there and I go, man, this is really embarrassing. I said, I thought I was in good enough shape to do a mile and a half. And he goes, mile and a half? That was 6.8 miles. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes, it makes sense. It's, it felt long. It felt long. And... I thought, you know, if they had told me that up front, I might, have, I might have approached the race differently. My pace might have been a little different. All right, the point is that perseverance matters, but we have to have the right end in mind. We have to be per- persevering into the right end, and so we have to redefine the purpose of our work. If you have your Bible, flip forward two chapters from where we were. Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul, in the same letter to the church at Colossae, listen to what he says. He says, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Do you see it? Redefine the purpose of our work, the glory of God, the good of people. C.S. Lewis made the comment that there's, there's no such thing as an ordinary person. You've never encountered an ordinary individual in your life because everybody bears the divine mark. 
And I'd say in the same way, there's no such thing as ordinary work. There's no such thing as an ordinary job. Even something as menial as washing the dishes actually is endowed with the same capacity to honor God and pursue the good of people, to contribute to the flourishing of the human community. And so we redefine the purpose of our work. And then secondly, if we're going to persevere, we have to learn to rejoice in the difficulty of our work. This isn't natural to us, but we have to learn to rejoice in the difficulty of our work. Look at verse 12 in our passage. Paul goes on, he says, And giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Work is toilsome. Work is difficult. The Bible recognizes that. If you read the creation account in Genesis, once Adam and Eve rebel and sin enters into the world, things get broken so that weeds and thistles begin to grow up amongst the plants and flowers. Nature is set against man and man is set against himself. And when we get to the New Testament, we read this Greek word that we talked about, perseverance. That word is almost always used to speak into a context of trial or struggle or difficulty. In fact, perseverance as a concept only makes sense in the context of trial, doesn't it? And the Bible says not just to withstand toil, not just to persevere, but actually to rejoice in it. It goes even further so that in James 1 and 1 Peter 1, the encouragement is to rejoice in trials of many kinds. Work is toilsome. The Bible says to persevere and give thanks. But why? Right? Why would we give thanks in it? Well, one answer that the Bible gives is that toil creates character. Toil is an essential ingredient for building godly character. God is using the difficulty of our labor to actually make us look more like Jesus, to shape us more into the image of God himself. So in James 1.4, James says, And let steadfastness, which is that same Greek word for perseverance, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul there says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. I once heard a pastor say it this way, For those of us who have placed our faith in and followed Jesus, we should have our hands to the plow, but our eyes full of wonder. Hands to the plow, eyes full of wonder. You may remember in Luke 9 in the gospel accounts that Jesus is, is going and he's walking down the way and he's calling men to follow him, saying, you, come and follow me. And he's met with a barrage of delays and excuses. And one guy says, my father just passed away. I need to tend to that matter. Another guy says, I just bought a field. I need to take care of my business. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Just drop everything and you come and follow me. And then he goes on to say that no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now that, that illustration, that imagery is very agrarian and it may be lost on some of us suburban dwellers. So here's a picture of a plow. Now th this is, I'm not, I don't know anything. I've never worked on a farm in my life, so I don't know a lot about plows. I'll just say this is an old timey plow. I don't know if it's a first century ancient Near East plow, but it's, the point is to see that this is heavy machinery. This isn't office work. This isn't air conditioned environment, right? So you can see that what Jesus is calling people to is a difficult work, inherently so. And he's saying that your hands must be put to the plow, a piece of rough splintered wood. That work is going to be agonizing. Can you imagine toiling the entire day under the, the noonday sun in Houston? Right? Driving this plow, you've got oxen attached to it. You're driving this thing into the earth with your, your weight on it. 
And think about this. If you're plowing this field all day, and if, if all you're doing is looking down at your plow tracks, if all you're seeing are the dry clumps of dirt and the patches of fallow soil, the blisters on your hands, you're going to grow weary. You're going to want to give up. You're going to become resentful and bitter about the, the field that God has placed you in. So what is it that keeps you in the field? What is it that keeps you persevering? It's a vision of the harvest, right? It's a vision of, of reaping what you sow, a vision of sitting around the table with your family eating and thanking God for his good gifts. The pastor I mentioned, Michael Frost, he said it this way. He said, I want disciples with hands filled with calluses, but eyes filled with fear and wonder of God. He said, I want to fix my eyes on God the way a child fixes their eyes on fireworks for the first time with fear and wonder. Now, if you go watch fireworks this weekend, I'd love it if you would think about that. Watch kids in the way that they behold the fireworks, the way that they react when they, when they feel the percussion of the blast rolling through their body. That's how we should have our eyes fixed on God with fear and wonder. Hands fixed to the plow, eyes full of wonder. If you flip back to Colossians 3, same same letter we're reading in, just two chapters past our principal passage. And here's what Paul says. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, that's you. Then he says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Do you see it? Eyes and minds set on Christ who is above, not on earthly things. Hands Fixed to the plow, eyes full of wonder. Now, I, I, I love history, and I, and I enjoy studying the Civil War. Many of you know that it was a turning point in American history. So 1861 through 1865, the Union Army was fighting for the, for the preservation of the Union and to overcome what was institutionalized slavery in the United States. This was a brutal war. This is not modern war. This isn't a video game. This isn't even, you know, drone warfare. There's no, there's no distance between soldier and death. This is musket balls and bayonets and field surgeons with hacksaws ready to provide treatment. And as these men, as they marched and fought, an anthem rose amongst their ranks called the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And if you don't know the title, you'd certainly know the tune. And one of the verses in that song that they would march to and sing goes like this. It says, in the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. Our God is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Do you see it? Glory, glory, hallelujah. Our God is marching on. This anthem called them to lift their eyes. It called them to focus not just on the muddy fields in which they camped and the bloody fields in which they fought and died, but actually to bear up behind the noble truth that, that God was marching on, that they were, they were embroiled in a, in a conflict of importance, that the lives and freedom of men and women hung in the balance of the outcome. Hands fixed to the plow, eyes full of wonder, rejoicing in the difficulty of our work. I knew um, a gentleman when I lived in New York. My wife and I lived in East Harlem. And we went to the 103rd and Lexington subway stop every day. That's how we got down to the subway to go to work. And there was a man named Freddie. He was an immigrant from Africa. I'm not sure which country, actually. But his job was to stand at the top of the stairs every day. And he had a stack of newspapers called the New York Metro. And it's just an aggregated news source with some ads in it. And they would hand it to people to read on the subway. Now, you can imagine that 
New Yorkers don't have necessarily a reputation for being the friendliest of people. So sometimes he'd be handing out papers and these people were ready to tell him where to put his paper. Right? This is not an easy job. He's making a minimum wage. He's working in the elements. He's there at 5 a.m. every morning until at least 10 a.m., living in, in one of the most expensive cities in the country. And yet Freddie every day worked with genuine joy. There wasn't a day I went to the subway that Freddie did not greet me with a genuine smile ear to ear and say, good morning, sir. How are you today? Every day. Unfathomable. I was going to a climate-controlled office environment, a relatively cush job, comparably. And this guy had more joy than I did every single day. And one day came and he, my wife and I had gotten to know him and just be friendly you know, over the course of a couple of years. And he told us he was transferring to a different subway station. We weren't going to see him anymore. So we gave, him a, we gave him a gift and we wrote him a letter and we said, Freddie, thank you for the way that you worked. Thank you for what you've taught us about perseverance and joy and gratitude. It's been such a pleasure to know you. And we included a, a book. And, and the book basically, um, it, it was an apologetic. It talked about what the evidence is for Jesus being the Messiah. And we wrote in the letter just our experience, how God had broken into our lives and the freedom and joy we'd experienced in Christ and encouraging him that if he didn't know Jesus to explore the person of Jesus. And Freddie wrote us back a letter and sent it to our apartment. And he said, hey man, I know all about Jesus and I, I love him and I follow him. And he, he, gave, he wrote scripture in there and he gave us some book recommendations and he encouraged us. Like, of course Freddie knew Jesus, right? How do you, I mean, I don't know how you work that way without supernatural strength, without understanding the purpose of work, the biblical purpose of work, without learning to have rejoiced in the difficulty of his work. Now, I don't know how heaven is laid out spatially, but, but if it's anything like a concert and there are varying degrees of seats, I am very confident Freddie's going to have a much better view of things than I will. Freddie understood what it meant. And there's another great New Yorker, Teddy Roosevelt, who became our president, he once said that far and away the best prize that life offers is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. I think Freddie got that. I think the Apostle Paul agrees with that, that by God's common grace, he's given all of us the opportunity, whether we wash dishes, mow grass, fly an airplane, run a tractor, work, whatever we do, engineers, architects, attorneys, we all have the opportunity with our labor to pursue the glory of God and the good of people. The third thing that we're going to have to do, if we're going to effectively persevere in our work, and this is by far and away the most important point. So if you've not heard anything I've said, tune in for this one, okay? We have to rely on Jesus for his work. We have to rely on Jesus for his work. The work of Jesus for us opens up the way of Jesus to us. If we try to walk in the way of Jesus without trusting in the work of Jesus, it's not going to go well. It's not going to go well. So first, embrace the work of Jesus for you. Now, if you're here today, if you're new to church, you're just exploring the Christian faith or a friend brought you, if that language doesn't make sense to you, if you don't know what I mean by that, um, I want to encourage you to, to stay after, grab me. Uh, there will be prayer partners or pastors around. Grab someone and ask because this is the most important thing that we could talk about today. When I say trust in the work of Jesus for you, what I mean is that through all the law and prophets in the Hebrew scriptures, God calls men to perfection and yet we have all failed in that. And Jesus comes as God's one and only son, as the perfect lamb, as the truer and better and ultimate sacrifice for our sins so that, that, so that sinners, people who have fallen short of the glory of God, like you and like me, that we could be reconciled to God. We have to trust in the work of Jesus. It's frankly our only hope to persevere in a godly way. 
Jesus is our model for perseverance, a perseverance that is unto the proper goal, that is steadfast and present, that's done with rejoicing. We looked at Hebrews 12 last week. Let's turn back there again, because Hebrews 12 really is a key passage for us to understand perseverance. Hebrews 12 and verse 1, the pastor writes, and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, catch that, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him so that you will not give up. Jesus redefined the purpose of work by pursuing his Father's glory and his neighbor's good. Recall that in Luke 22, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. He is sweating drops of blood. He is in such agony. And he prays and he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to be crucified. I don't want the sin and shame of all humanity put upon me. Yet not my will be done, but your will be done. The glory of God and the good of all people. There would be no human flourishing. There'd be no flourishing for you or for me if Jesus had not done what he did on the cross. And Jesus rejoiced in the difficulty of his work. It says right there in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. We said this last week, as Jesus carried the cross up the hill, as, as, he, was, as he was whipped as his hands were, were placed into the wood, as his nails went through his hands, he had in mind joy. Recall in Luke 9, Jesus calls people to fix their hands to the plow, to this weathered, splintered, rugged piece of wood in agony, and see now that Jesus himself has his hands fixed to the plow, this weathered, splintered, rugged piece of wood, hands fixed to the plow, eyes full of wonder for the joy set before him. And then recall that the thief who's being killed next to him begs Jesus for mercy. And what does Jesus say? He says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What does Jesus have in mind as he's fixed to the plow, as he's hanging on the cross, bearing the weight of our sin, the joy that was set before him, imagining unity with the Father, being seated at the right hand of the throne of God, rejoicing in the difficulty of his work. Friends, if you're, under, if you're under the impression today that your work, whatever it is, is about the accumulation of power or prestige or possessions, I want to tell you that's not it. That is not the purpose of our work. That is not why God, why God has called us into our various fields. That is not why God had, has given you the opportunities and talents and gifts that he has. The biblical purpose for work, the end unto which we persevere, is the glory of God and the good of people. That's it. God is calling us to persevere in our work in such a way that it shows men the glory of God and the truth of the gospel, the good news of God's love for us as manifest through Jesus, and to contribute to the good of our neighbors, the flourishing of our entire community. And that's true regardless of whether anyone has anything positive to say about our business acumen, our success, our accomplishments, our awards, our bank account. Ultimately, none of that matters. That's not the purpose of work. That's not the ultimate purpose of work. Friends, we can either work for God's glory or, or our own. Now, our, our life may produce both, but we can only pursue one. So as we close today, I'm going to pray. Would you pray with me as we ask God for help in this? 
Father, we thank you this morning, first of all, for your good work, for your good work in creation, for giving us life. We know that we could not sustain a single breath apart from you, but by your grace, you've given us life. God, we thank you that though we have rebelled against you, though we have been far from you, though we have failed to uphold the law that you laid out, that you and your great love for us, that you have persevered, you have pursued, that you have sent your one and only son, Jesus, to do all that we could not do, to live a perfect life and to die a death on our behalf as our perfect spotless lamb, the the final sacrifice for sin. God, in our work, we want to honor you. We want to contribute to the good of our neighbors. And we recognize that we are lazy, selfish, short-sighted, self-regarding, ambitious people who struggle to work with a godly purpose, who struggle to fulfill our biblical mandate in work. And so, Father, this morning we confess that. We lean upon your mercy to help us. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to do all that God has in mind for us to work with diligence and faithfulness and perseverance in all the fields that he places us, that we could exalt Christ by our life, that we could honor you, our Father in heaven, and that we could contribute to the good of our neighbors. Father, we thank you for your goodness, and we ask for your help this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.